Hello and welcome to the Crisis Designer Weekly Podcast. This is me, Robert Pratton. And this is Belen Santaolalla from Conductor Crisis Simulation Platform. So yeah, you're listening to the podcast where we share tips, thoughts and concepts to help you create remarkable exercises. Yep. So if you're into crisis management, reputational risk, information warfare, business continuity training, or immersive simulations in general, this podcast is for you. Welcome. Welcome back. It's the second episode of the year. If you've only just discovered us, there is a whole other season from the previous from the previous year. So it's, it's kind of like um, a coffee morning where we review stuff that we, you know, caught our attention this week. And then we look ahead to what we're going to do over the weekend. And um, occasionally we get in um, a guest. And uh, Belen, tell us about this week's guest. This week's guest is Krishna Stott. It's an interactive storyteller from Bellyfield. And we're going to talk about participation, uh, interactive narratives, and a fantastic conference uh, that is going to happen very soon. And uh, we're going to uh, discover what's it all about uh, in his section. Brilliant. But before that, Belen, let's find out what caught our eye this week. So Rob, what caught your eye this week? Um, yeah, I got sent um, a link to something that's been put out by the uh, New Zealand government, and it's called um, Anatomy of a Ransomware Attack. And it's, it's a pretty good um, document, actually, because it's a nice infographic. But then you can actually drill down in the text of the of the sort of blog post of the of the article and it will it will explain different things and it will try to explain how to mitigate certain risks from that so i thought that was um so i thought that was that was quite good and i've already shared it with different uh different people um and then the other thing that a couple of other things around um all related to reputational risk so there's um i have like news alerts from the uh FT and one one popped up yesterday about this Activision deal. So Microsoft, if you don't know, Microsoft are looking to buy um, Activision, which is a big um, games company. And what what the FT is saying is that the reason they're able to do that is because uh, back in July there were these allegations of sexual harassment, um, mm. and this this was the company where. They were saying that it was like a, like a laddish culture. Oh, it is the actual quote. So they, the um, California regulators alleged last year it was a pervasive, uh, pervasive frat boy workplace culture. Oh my god! So yeah, so it's a bit sort of like blokey, I would say. But anyway, this and and so there's been other uh, issues, and it's caused the share price to fall thirty percent. So it's fallen thirty percent since July, and this is given an opportunity for Microsoft to come in. So quite a big, um, quite a big uh, issue there with their reputational risk. And the other thing that uh, caught my eye was uh, I love Kit Kats, uh, <laughs> but unfortunately they're not so popular in India anymore. I don't know about you, I can't have a train journey without getting a cup of tea and a Kit Kat. It's almost like impossible, it's like in bread. Anyway, so what's happened in India is, uh, Kit Kat put these, um, it's, it's basically like a picture 
of um, some Hindu gods on the wrapper. And what Nestle said was, you know, they're trying to um, celebrate the culture, but a lot of Indians don't agree. And their concern is that once people have eaten their Kit Kat, that wrapper with the gods on it ends up in the oh. bin, you know, languishing in a in a gutter somewhere. So it's caused quite a lot of, um, you know, quite a lot of fuss. I don't know what the, the fallout has been from Nestle, you know, or to Nestle, but it's certainly caused a, a buzz on um on social media apparently in india oh, wow that's that really tells you how different uh, an unexpected <laughs> reputational crisis can be i mean maybe i'm guessing that uh, nestle were were doing that trying to celebrate culture and to to try to reach a different audience or 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 try to uh, really get closer to them and look at that who would it's who not have, gone very well yeah who would have thought that it's like well, their advertising agency should have thought about it. Yeah, well, <laughs> but yeah, like the, because the wrapper is going to end up in the bin. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's difficult to to I don't know um, foresee that it's going to generate such. Yeah, a but that says I, I think that it says to me there's there's potential lack of diversity on yeah. the you know on whoever was involved in drawing up the things because someone was there from that market might have said uh i don't, I don't know if it's going to go down very well <laughs> it kind of feels like that it's something an idea from europe or america imposed in a different country because they don't know the cultural mix probably and it looks all right i mean um we'll include the link to the um msn uh article here for me a westerner buddhist um it just looks like a picture of, of a teapot on on a Kit Kat, but unfortunately, on the teapot are apparently I would never have recognised them. Some Hindu gods, and uh, that's the that's the fuss. Yeah. So apparently, the article the article is quite a good one actually because it goes on to ex explain about the uh, growing nationalism, and they're saying there's been a number of uh, brands. So Amazon Prime were forced to uh, cut out some scenes that people considered were an insult to Hindu gods, and um, there's a jewellery brand, apparently, I've not heard of them, Tanishk. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, uh, apparently, they sort of fought, fell foul of this sort of disrespect towards uh, sort of Hindu uh, gods or whatever. And uh, they saw their share price fall after there was a um, um, uh, boycott Tanishk was the hashtag that was trending. So, I mean, these things do follow yeah a normal playbook don't they i mean so it's quite it is it's definitely something that it's possible to rehearse for yeah if, you know given all the controls you might have you might end up inadvertently falling foul with you know something that somebody somewhere finds offensive <laughs> we, are, we are living in an era of cancel culture exactly. and so um uh so yeah i mean to to plan rehearse for these types of things is a good idea i would say definitely yeah what well, about you, Berlin? What caught my eye? Uh, it's kind of also uh, similar. And the first article that I found um, is about foreseeing 
futures. And it's um, uh, how France uh, is relying on science fiction to prepare for the future wars. Okay. Uh, they have um, the French Ministry of Armies, uh, have, they have developed a team that is called the Red Team Defense. And yeah. they are um, literature uh, and, and uh, illustrators and uh, literature authors, illustrators uh, that are um, commissioned to create uh, uh, science fiction's futures uh, that army would need to prepare to uh, for um, uh, the, the 21, 21st uh, century. Uh, so it's, it's uh, obviously the army has like this um, uh, anticipation and, and uh, future uh, scenarios uh, departments, but these uh, science fiction authors are uh, supposed to really go further than that. So it's really investigate uh, uh, with uh, more freedom, let's say, because they uh, they can imagine uh, different things that maybe uh, the reality or all the scholars or researchers that are thinking of what could happen um, in 10 years time, it's they're really considering uh, what is um, what is supposed to come but these are really uh, mm -hmm. these authors are commissioned to imagine these different scenarios uh, that are really um, linked Out to reality there, suppose, yeah, yeah but they're linked to reality somehow but they are kind of more wild and so um, uh, the army uh, has uh, is working with them uh, and there's this article in which they are saying how they try to to keep things serious because they are uh, really trying to be useful because uh, uh, the, um, the takeaways uh, are going to uh, be real um, teams or real, uh, it, it's going to have a real impact of how the army is going to uh, prepare for different threats. Uh, for example, there's, there's this um, uh, project that is called uh, the Myriad project, and that's um, basically uh, uh, related to uh, cognitive warfare. And that uh, area and that project, that department has been created uh, because of the science fiction uh, writers and all the projects that they've been doing. So um, this, uh, this cognitive warfare as the ability to exploit uh, vulnerabilities of the human brain, um, uh, it's, uh, it's really linked to what's going on right now. And, um, and with uh, these scenarios that uh, this team has created. Right now, they've uh, published a book uh, that, that is called uh, uh, The Worst That Will Come. Uh, and it's uh, in, in, in these um, scenarios, uh, it, they will happen from 2030 to 2060. And they, these are the, uh, let's say, the, the um, non-confidential scenarios that they've been right, okay, released yeah. and they are they're published obviously there's a part of of um, the work that they are doing that is uh not um available yeah. um but they have a website that is redteamdefense.org where they have it's a really nice website with uh, videos and the infographics and Im images because also illustrators um are uh working on this uh, uh, and they, you can uh, uh, simulate an attack, a uh, spatial attack, a naval attack, and it's really interesting. And they, or you can, they also draw how the the, uh, the soldier of the future will look like. So I think that it's a, a really nice uh, hybrid of uh, reality and uh, arts, uh, working towards uh, getting ready for this. It is a nice website, isn't it? It is a mm. nice. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really, really cool. pretty. 
it's really cool. So yeah, check it out. The link will be in the notes. And uh, the other thing that caught my eye is that um, uh, Wonderman Thompson has released a new uh, report that is the, um, the Future 100. They do this every year. And these are trends and change to watch in 2022. And I really like how they, they have like these uh, 100 trends and I really like how they call them there because uh, they, they, uh, they find like very funny titles like, uh, well, microforests, uh, virtual genuine influencers, cryptonomics, mycological retreats, new age notics, blue zones diets. Most of these things, I really don't know what they are. Uh, Edible escapism uh, or TikTok therapy. So it really, it's about trends that they've they've been uh, ongoing and we can expect more of this um, in this year. Uh, But one that specifically uh, caught my eye was uh, something that was called uh, brandalism. And oh, it's, yeah. uh, how uh, mm, there's bind- vandalism for good hijacks at space. That's how they uh, describe it, exposing brands and demanding they do better. Uh, and this is um, uh, linked to uh, the COP26 uh, Global Climate Conference that took place and how uh, these activists have been uh, hijacking uh, billboards and uh, really uh, showing how uh, like, uh, for example, that you can see in the in the report, some images of uh, the cars uh, and how they are really uh, damaging the environment, but they look like a, a, an ad from the from that company from Ford or, uh, or from uh, So it's a bit like brand jacking, isn't it? I mean, we, uh... It's I mean, kind it's of brand that, jacking, yeah. yeah. It's brand is brand jacking, and there it's also there are some demands also to the um, uh, advertising agencies that they are uh, they are saying that they are like uh, um, uh, washing uh, the image of brands. Uh, they, like the the advertising companies are not really taking into account how some brands can be really damaging to the climate. Uh, uh, right. And then it's they are they are in the mix of the reputational uh, uh, threat uh, because it's not only the brand but the advertising agencies are also being blamed for really uh, not uh, standing against the brands that uh, promote well, the products. them. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so one of the things off that caught my eye from that report actually was like the virtual influencers, uh-huh. these um, sort of like avatars that have been computer generated yep. and yeah they have like massive followings and there's one that i follow actually on uh, instagram just to just to i'm not interested in the fashion stuff that she comes out with but it's quite interesting i think it's good it'd be good yeah. for us because we can you know we just create our own influencer as exactly. a 3d avatar we won't have to worry about you know getting a real person <laughs> not anymore that's true so no, that's really good. That's also reminded me actually of um, something else that caught my eye this week, which was um, which was which was the massive world that is Warhammer. So mm-hmm. I mean, I always know Warhammer from like the little miniatures where you go into Games Workshop and you can sit there painting them and stuff like that. But uh, Tom, who um, who works with us, joined for, joined from the joined from the army and uh, he was uh, he was reading a book and it's from the warhammer 
universe, which I didn't know, but he explained to me that there's like these hundreds of books. There's at least in the current series that he's reading, there's at least like 16 books in that thing. And he was a bit, um, he was a bit shy of telling me. And I, it, it reminded me of like one of these like rescue pets where, you know, their previous owner had beaten them and, they, and they're sort of like cowering. And I was like to say to him, Tom, you're not in the army now. Your nerdism can come out. You're totally in a safe space where you can talk about Warhammer and these, you know, and board games and stuff like that. No one's going to hold it against you. It's good company. So that is pretty, that's pretty funny. But he did, I mean, um, I'm going to check out the uh, the books that he's reading now because they did sound, uh, they did sound pretty good actually. Fantastic. Okay, so shall we move on to the main section? Let's do it. So in today's main main section, we have a very special guest. We have Krishna Stott, who is an interactive storyteller at Bellyfish. Hello, Krishna. Hello, Belen. Hello, Robert. Hello, Krishna. Thanks for coming on. We've known you for ages and it's yeah. uh, for years and it's great to be able to get you on the podcast. Yeah, cool. Well, we're always we've always been in touch and had interesting conversations. So, yeah, now it's in front of the public. We always look forward to the Bellyfish newsletter, which is one of the few, if not the only physical piece of mail that I get, you know, like kind of newsletters that I get. And I really look forward to it. It's great. Nice, thank you. And I get the digital version uh, that has a very great name that is Bored by Algorithm. <laughs> Bored by the Algorithm. <laughs> by yeah. the Algorithm, yeah, and it's fantastic uh, content you put out there. So thank great. you very much. Oh, good, thank you. Really That's enjoyed. really good. So what, well, I mean, what, what prompted us or, you know, sort of motivated us to get you on um, this particular episode was the upcoming conference. I think it'd be good just to men mention that and then use that. Yeah, well, that, that's happening on the 2nd of February, and it's uh, like a long half day between midday and five, and we've got some great speakers, and it's focused around interactive storytelling in all its different many forms and flavors, um, and we've got some pre-recorded content, especially from Yoko Taro, the Japanese game designer. Uh, we have Kim Townend and the Nerd Pirates, who are <laughs> kind of talking about a social... Uh, a social campaign that they did for the sh officially the official BBC Sherlock escape room launch. Okay. Back, mm. Which is going to be interesting. Uh, we've got Justin Keenan, who worked on Disco Elysium talking. Um, and then Anna Zulikowska and some special guests uh, talking about the audience as performers, like the modern, the, the sort of modern paradigm of being in the audience and being a performer. Um, and Anna's from the Leeds Beckett Northern Film School, which who are co-producing the conference. Um, and then we've got like a sort of uh, a keynote with Bernie Sue, who's very sort of established interactive transmedia showrunner. He's won three primetime Emmys for his work across YouTube and Twitch. Um, so it's going to be a really good, interesting day. And for me, it's a real pleasure to be part of. And I, you know, it's my fascination and obsession, interactive storytelling. So to, to really have a focus on a conference that's all about that is going to be really amazing. And everybody's welcome. Tickets are free from modernaudience.org. 
So, and it's a video. It's going to be a video, like a virtual conference. Yeah, a virtual conference online with a Zoom. Um, it's for like five hours. And I think if you register, you get the recordings afterwards. If you can't actually make it, but uh, it's going to be pretty busy. It's certainly the tickets have gone much quicker and in much larger numbers than I had expected or hoped for. So, I hope we don't sell out, but we might do. I mean, is there is there a limit then to the number of people you can get into the? Probably a thousand. Oh, okay, right. I mean, the speakers you've got are amazing. I mean, like Yoko Taro, he's like mad, complete. I mean, like he only does interviews with like massive like head thing. <laughs> yeah, he's, he is amazing, and his games are amazing. And we were so lucky to get him to to do a piece for us. It's brilliant. Yeah. So, yeah, Near, Ultima Near Automata is one of my top games of all time. It's like the next, it's so amazing. I love it. The, the, the way also you've got like the main female character and the main boy character and you can, you can play the game again as different characters as either one. And then you get a different perspective on the story and the events that on you've already played. Story, once. Yeah. The whole thing is incredible. It's brilliant. I really love it. And thematically, it's very, very strong and unusual, I think. Yes. The story and the kind of themes going on behind it are incredible and incredibly deep for, for, for any story, let alone sort of a video game. And I like the little sort of mini, you know, when you have to hack the robot. So one minute you're sort of running around in this sort of third person sort of, you know, open world type thing. And then when you have to do the sort of like the, the hacking of the androids or whatever you go into this little mini game that kind of reminded me of defender a little bit where you kind of spinning around trying to shoot stuff and that's brilliant it is and it was just tricky enough it was frustrating enough that i couldn't get it first time yeah. i loved it it's a brilliant game it's wild and have you played disco elysium i have yeah and i i liked that it was it was strangely addictive when i when i first played it i was like Oh my God, it's a little bit, confu not confusing, but I was like, I didn't quite get it. And then because it had such good reviews and such good feedback, I thought I need to persevere with it a little bit more. Um, and also I'm not a fan of playing on like the desktop. I like to play it on the PS4 or Xbox because then I can sit on the sofa because I spend so much time on a computer. So I think I waited until it went to the PS4 and then I played it on there and then I sort of got into it. It's, it's really interesting. It's very thought provoking. Yeah, it's definitely a game worth playing. It's so deep and complex. And um, yeah, I, I, I soaked up a lot of time over Christmas this Christmas playing through that and uh, but I couldn't play too much of it at once. It was so heavy and so complex. But that, yeah. that was the appeal for me, really. But it draws you back, though, doesn't it? That's what I found. Like, I found myself thinking about it when I wasn't playing it. Yeah. And every time I got onto it, I was like, oh, this is a bit deep and complex. And then and then I'd put it down. I'd go, I need to go. I need to know how that story finishes. Like, what's, you know, <laughs> it's got to get that painting or whatever it was. Like, it's really good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. great. So, Krishna, uh, why... Um to hold a, a conference about the modern audience. What's the modern audience? Why is that modern and why is it different from the old audience? Well, I guess it's the shift to interactivity that fascinates me. And so I've always kind of been labeling uh, the, the, the intended audience for these interactive stories as the modern audience. Um, I, I guess it's the difference between kind of linear sit back and the publishing business model of the like 
early to late 20th century because that's that's how i kind of break it up really is that like the publishing model of the 20th century from kind of like books and tv and shifting boxes and cinema to some extent but that's publishing and and stories prior to that were always much more interactive whether they be oral or theater or that that kind of that those kind of traditions really were much more interactive than than it being delivered to you as a finished piece of work and and i think digital technologies have unlocked interactivity and so i the modern audience is 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 how that is how we are consuming that kind of media through digital means through digital devices and the shift in in the kind of way that that alters stories and our perception and the way that people are interacting with stories if that makes any sense at all <laughs> it does it does make sense so as you know uh, this podcast is aimed to uh, crisis designers uh, who are putting together uh, scenarios and stories uh, to to train and and to rehearse for for different situations so um how would you say that interactivity and participation uh is important in that kind of, of stories in which you have to experience uh, something to really understand uh, how would you react uh, if that happened? Well, I guess uh, simulation is really strong in terms of training and um, uh, in, in terms of education. And I guess, I mean, I remember coming to a conductor conference that you guys put on a few years back and it was there's a classic is it confucius quote about tell me something and that's I will. right yeah what is it is it tell me and i'll remember uh, and if uh, i do it i, I think it's, it's something like tell me and it goes in one ear and out the other <laughs> if you get me to if you get me to do it then i'll remember it Forever. yeah yeah i can't remember exactly but yeah it's exactly kind of that method. It, it internalizes process and 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 your reactions and feelings, which I think are really a big part of learning about stuff. So, you know, I can instantly see that, you know, crisis simulation is a very interactive field and that, you know, storytelling must be a huge part of that because you're presenting potentially a reality-based fiction to people that they have to uh they exactly. have to engage within and and find ways through so so i mean you know i mean as 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 robert mentioned the near automated game you know some of that is like crisis simulation really where you're in a game and you're you're dealing with terrible situations and trying to make make the best decisions in there so gameplay and crisis simulation it's all part of the same thing isn't it i think totally and i think the thing about the participation is you get an emotional much more emotional connection to it because you know in some way you're sort of uh, responsible for the for the way that the protagonist goes which is you uh, in this case and if you if you've got like a, an organization that's trying to affect behavioral change particularly in the area of like cyber security like the, one of the biggest weaknesses is the staff that so you have all these procedures and you have like antivirus or whatever but if the staff staff are kind of like cavalier you know about adhering to that it's 
it's not going to work right and so by taking them through a participatory experience where they actually feel it and internalize it it's much more likely that they're going to do it in real life for example yeah i mean they say about hacking don't they the, the, you know the, the first stop in any hackers kind of like repertoire is to 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 deal with the human you know where's the password written down or it's <laughs> yeah, exactly. like those you know if unless the humans get fixed first then you know that that's where they will go first for kind of trying to get the, the information that's <laughs> supposed to be secret i guess do you think do you think the sort of participation has changed at all do you think audiences are more willing to participate now and like in, in an entertainment experience for example yeah totally i think it's become part of the modern way that we deal with media i mean just so much media is interactive and i mean for me i started my sort of obsession with interactive storytelling started about 25 years ago and back then nobody really got it and if i was foolish enough to mention it in like a <laughs> social situation then some people might know of the choose your own adventure book say but but I mean, that, that was never really my obsession. I was kind of really into pushing the barriers of technology and storytelling. Well, I wasn't really interested in choose your own adventure books. And so, but nowadays, interactive storytelling is part of the vernacular and part of people's language. And if you, like, I, I do a lot of work and testing with people who are like at or recently graduated from university. And if you mentioned interactive storytelling to those guys, they don't even they don't question it whereas you know even 10 oh. years ago that was very different and people didn't really get it but i think the the kind of use of social media like everybody plays games the rise of tabletop games and role player games all of this contributes towards a world where interactive storytelling is kind of just part of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis i don't i mean it was a kind of it was a thing like previously, but now it's part of a much bigger world of media and storytelling and entertainment, I, I believe. Do you think escape rooms as well have like helped open totally, up? Totally, totally. I mean, they're, they're really massive and whether that's live, I mean, you've got escape rooms as video games, you've got escape rooms as live experiences, uh and you've also got the play at home ones where they'll send you a package and you you print it out yeah. and play i i mean 18 months ago in a break in the pandemic there's one in manchester and it's in a van and you call them up and you pay them whatever it is and they they, they reverse the van into your drive and you do the escape room in the van it's wow that is brilliant <laughs> that is brilliant how big's the van is that a transit van or a big container uh, lorry it's a luton it's like a luton van that's that. brilliant that's really good i love escape rooms and that they, they are yeah i mean it's just really <laughs> it's definitely part of all that stuff <laughs> that is brilliant it's sort of like uh what would you call it like deliveroo i need an escape room of what theme medieval okay i'm on it and they turn up like but do, really they, do they lock you in the van and you have to get out get out of the van yeah, yeah pretty much i mean if, if there was an emergency there is a there is a way to get out but yeah that's that's the idea that's really, i could imagine i could imagine that there might be one of these laws where 
you know, you're not allowed to park in that area. They go, just get them in the van and we'll drive around the roundabout. We'll just drive around the city for a bit. And wherever you escape, we'll let you out at that point. <laughs> That's part two. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So, Krishna, uh, as an interactive story, story oh, uh, well, I don't know what's wrong with that word today. <laughs> Krishna. As an interactive storyteller yourself, um, how do you deal with uh, participation and storytelling when you are creating your own uh, uh, projects? Uh, what comes first? Uh, what, uh, how do you uh, integrate both? Generally via testing and prototyping. I think there's, there's ideas coming from both sides, from technology and from storytelling. And there might be a like, little fizzle like an experiment in twine or we'll mock something up in unity and sometimes kind of ideas will spring from one prototype into something else so i mean yeah it, it can come from anywhere really and then then sometimes there, there's like paid gigs which are you know we want to do something specific or reach a specific audience and then the audience and the technology might be kind of you know, subject to, to that aim. And then, then there would be kind of testing and prototyping along that route as well. But um, yeah, I mean, generally, if it's coming from one side or the other, you've got to kind of mix it up and test it before too long, because then, then you, you need to see how people are going to interact with it and see if they, they kind of emotionally interact with it, see if they physically interact with it. And, you know, getting those kind of things right, it's, it's pretty rare that it happens first time. So testing and prototyping and reiterating is, is like significant part of the work that we do and that I do. I think it should be. I mean, in the corporate space, there's there's quite a big emphasis on like sort of right first time. But I, but I, I think we've always said that it's an iterative process. And because it's experiential, you need that kind of go round in a cycle. So do something, see, how, you know, see if people get it uh, and so on. Yeah. And that makes for better, better quality experiences, which is ultimately the aim. I mean, it, sometimes you get lucky and just one thing works and, and it might be that thing or but but generally you're kind of mixing different bits together whether it be different ideas for story different interactions for the audience it's 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 hard it's really hard to get things right first time virtually impossible i think one of the challenges as well with interactive storytelling is you want to make it as participatory as possible but there might be a certain amount of story or you know, in the context of crisis simulations, like, I don't know, reference information that you need to get out. And it's getting, it's, it's trying to make sure that you always err on the side of participation, because otherwise you can have exercises where there's like so much reading before people get into doing something and then they're already switched off. I think that's a challenge. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's like exposition, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, there's interesting ways. I, I've been sort of experimenting with, doing like quizzes as part of interactive storytelling as like to test comprehension along the way because also if you go and people are going down different routes at a certain point you want to know what people know or what they comprehend uh, or what okay. they understand and I, I quizzes can be quite useful for that sort of thing but yeah i mean it's it is difficult and exposition is always 
it can it can really kind of stick in the craw really for people i think it can really slow down the experience but yeah because i think i think some writers are in love with a story so much they feel like they need to deliver the whole story world bible too soon rather than have it discovered through the exploration yeah and then but then some of that kind of just that is like the the old that's just as old as the hills in terms of storytelling isn't it and how much how much you can kind of let the thing drip out really do you do much environmental storytelling you know the idea that you explore a space and you can see objects and you try to understand that it is part of that world not really we've done a bit of kind of um a bit of geo storytelling but generally kind of from from the level of google maps so you're not actually in the space and you explore explore spaces and places and geograph geography from the kind of you know three thousand foot view i've not really we've done a bit of sort of planting of stuff in places a bit like treasure hunt elements as yeah, part okay. of args and transmedia but never a particular space um but i think you know i've 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 done, I've, I've experienced things that I've quite liked. I did a brilliant blast theory thing in uh, Sheffield at the documentary festival, probably sort of 10 years ago. And that was, they give you a, they interview you, give you a phone and you walking around the streets, listening to one of two recordings. And it was about kind of terrorism. And uh, I think it was, you either got somebody from the IRA in the seventies or somebody from Bader Meinhof talking to you as you're walking around the streets, looking at people. And it was really, really unsettling and amazing. And that, that was, cause that was a kind of a weird sort of environmental thing. That's really good. I quite like those. Did you, did you do that one Berlin in Trafalgar square where, so you told me in Trafalgar square or actually, well, you actually, you met at Charing Cross station, you put the headphones on and you had to hit play when the clock went to the, or like on the hour. So you press play and then the thing said, now move to Trafalgar Square, which for those who don't know, is just a short walk away. And you saw like lots of people in the station all turn and walk, you know. So you're looking around to see who's got their headphones on. This is a little while ago before the earbuds became popular. So then it was in Trafalgar Square and it tells you to look in a certain direction and you get actors doing stuff. And if you've got the headphones on, obviously you're queued in because you know to watch the person. Do t- but you've got loads of other people in that environment are unaware that there's actually a story being told in that space. So that was that was pretty. Uh, I didn't get to do that. I, I remember uh, pictures that you took of that experience. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I, I did something similar that I think it was commissioned by uh, the Museum of London or something, and it was uh, an audio experience uh, for two people in which you had an app, and then you were hearing uh, an audio track and a very uh, detailed like environmental um, sound, and then uh, you click play uh, at the same time with uh, the partner, and then you were guided through different routes and there were moments in which you were positioned so you'd see each other through a through a, a right, gate yeah. or something and then everything is like with a, a sound and story and it was really interesting i think that all that has to do with audio on an uh, environmental storytelling is really really powerful that was good i remember that i did that with sarjip mm. we did one last year have you come across darkfield radio no i've heard of they're it. quite interesting um they had 
they've got a bunch of things um, that are kind of ongoing, and again, they're part of their the sort of a different um, type of different type of genre of of stuff, kind of possibly more towards kind of theatrical online interactive stuff, where they are events that you attend, and it might only be you, but. Um, so that is an audio thing. And I think there were three things for two people and you both have an app and it's sequenced and you're both wearing headphones. And one is sitting across the kitchen table from your from somebody you're playing with and the audio is playing and it's really strange. Then the other one is being in separate rooms. I can't remember what the other one was, but that was that was an interesting sort of environmental audio thing that was, I guess it's kind of interactive, but it's it's you don't have to do a lot but it, it it's kind of more interactive of the mind really and and of the space and the, the people but that was they're, they're quite interesting and uh krishna you've mentioned before uh, args uh which uh, our audience might not be familiar with that what's an arg an alternate reality game um i mean i guess they're one of the first sort of for me they're one of the first kind of entertainment forms that are perhaps native or centralized to the internet and very multi-platform, I guess, you know, the whole kind of transmedia movement, which came about like 2009, 2010, following the book by Jen Henry Jenkins and the Matrix and the Beast, which was uh, uh, an alternate reality game promoting the AI film. And then I love bees promoting the Halo game franchise. So in, ARGs are kind of multi-platform and they start as puzzles generally. I mean, I I was very entranced with the idea of ARGs and I, I kind of made a couple with Belly Feel, but generally my participation of those, they were, they were very difficult to, to get into and, and, and I always felt like the, the game of catch up on an ARG was particularly particularly cruel to the audience. I never found it that user-friendly, really. But, um, I mean, there were some really interesting ones, you know, those big ones that I mentioned. And then um, what would be a kind of smaller one? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the... I mean, they, they became really popular across advertising. The Audi did the art yeah. of the heist. Um, there were ones for TV shows, films... There were ones that were purely native as ARGs, but I, I guess it's the their group participatory story experiences, very puzzle heavy often, um, and centralized to a forum or some other kind of place online. But then you know they would have elements that spread all over the place, like the the classic "Why So Serious" Batman Batman ARG, where they had mobile phones hidden in cake shops across America, which people found them and then the phones would ring and they'd rip them out of the cake and plastic bag. Um, and it was a real, I guess they were, what they were really good for was experimenting with kind of dispersed media and, and media that was kind of, I mean, up, up before kind of ARGs and, and transmedia, I always thought of um, interactive storytelling as kind of labyrinthine experiences, very often on single screens as part of video games or interactive experiences that went in and you kind of explored a labyrinth of information within 
that story but, but you weren't expected to go to a cake shop or a <laughs> box down the road kind of thing. but then yeah. um that that kind of expansion sort of mirrored what was happening with social media so it it was kind of echoing all over the place that the, you know things were just shooting off into, we had so many different platforms and places and spaces digitally and then those alternate reality games started to access those places but also spaces and places in the real world as well i think a big thing a big thing about alternate reality games because you were saying like in those early days it was there was a lot of talk about the hive mind the idea that the community around that arg would come together to solve the puzzle because they were so cryptic or you know they might to get the next clue might be in the middle of a field somewhere so you needed a community because it might be like 500 miles from where you live and you needed somebody locally to get it and share that information and you know the, what we see now is basically QAnon is basically an alternate reality game this ridiculous conspiracy theory about you know paedophiles having infiltrated the deep state and all of this and people just make it up and i i follow this um this person on substack and they've they do like analysis of like the latest nonsense to come out of QAnon, and it just gets more and more bizarre where they're finding like real world sort of artifacts and then trying to like do this alternative history about that about how that is all part of this sort of paedophilic deep state conspiracy it's absolutely nuts but it's totally an arg relying on you know alternative histories and reinvention using fiction um but leveraging real world artifacts right interesting yeah, it's completely mad. And I'm also uh, remembering <laughs> this other ARG that was World Without Oil. Do you remember that? Oh, uh, God, yeah. Ken uh, Eklund one uh, that was uh, had a community to uh, to manufacture stories of what it would be if the world run run out of oil, obviously, which I think that it was in, 20, um, in, in 2007. Uh, but it's quite pertinent right now with all the climate change uh, and all the activist uh, movements. So that really tells you how to um, a dystopic uh, environment. Uh, and I think that there's a link between that and crisis simulations is how to uh, you have to imagine what it would be the world if we had like a major crisis like the run the oil uh, run out or uh, we had a um, reputation crisis in our company. So it's about really thinking of a different uh, sphere to really emotionally place you there uh, uh, and really see how you would react and how you would be, uh, what, what would you do uh, in that aspect? So I think that interactivity, it's really powerful in that regard. Yeah, that was a really powerful project, I think, World Without Oil. I mean, I didn't participate, but, but the feedback from people and I think they, they kind of engaged a lot with a younger audience and, and people had to like really just use their imagination to, to figure out. And obviously there was a lot of interactive in terms of responding and communications, but really at the core of it, it seemed to be this thing of imagining and, and kind of trying to, to live that kind of story, which, you know, is, is, was just brilliant, I think, and quite influential. So Krishna, tell us a little bit more about the, the conference. Uh, what, what is going to happen? What would you be, uh, uh, would you uh, say are the highlights uh, that our audience uh, would uh, find and why would they need to register straight away to attend? 
sure. I mean, I think it would be difficult for me to to say to to, to kind of you know promote one above the other because I think it's all going to be like really relevant and and probably relevant to your audience of people who maybe kind of dealing with creating crisis simulations or simulations of any kind really but i think it's it's you've got people talking about social media and campaigns around kind of real world escape rooms that's that's kind of one thing from kim townend and the nerd pirates yoko taro will be talking about his own particular sort of brand of storytelling within games and what he believes I don't know exactly what he's going to talk about, but um, I mean, I know that he has some really strong ideas about where games are going and where they're not going and what they mean and what they don't mean. He's very, and he's got always got a really unusual point of view, which I think is, is at the kind of cusp of, of modern, you know, of innovation in terms of game-based storytelling. What's the, just sorry, Chris, just to interrupt, what's the name? Can you remember the name of the game designer that did Death Rising? And, um, Death did he Stranding. Go, Death Stranding, sorry, yeah. Who's that? Hojima, if that's how you... It is that. something like that, isn't it? Yeah. Yojima or something? I'm You're right, good. that's it, yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting talking... to have them two in a room and... It would. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm also thinking about trying to get him for next year as well. He but, was um, Hideo Kojima, right? Hideo Kojima. Yes, it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. When, he, when you said about modern gaming, it made me think of him as well. Yeah, I mean, he he was sort of uh, director for a long time of Metal Gear Solid. From, that's it. Yeah, from, yeah. That's something that people hold in in great regard. Uh, and then obviously Death Stranding was a really unusual game um, and tough to play, but but really, you know, visionary as well, I think, in terms of its content and its ideas. I quite liked it in a weird sort of way, but I felt like once it was over, it wasn't something I was ever going to go back to. Because no. it was basically being like a post-apocalyptic postman. Yeah, it was a bit of a grind for me. And I was, you know, in the... In the second act, I was kind of looking forward to the end, but I wanted to know what happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it had in some interesting spiritual bits, didn't it? With the dead whales and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was, it was interesting. And I, that Yokotaro, he's, he's definitely on a, he's definitely in a different mindset. So, like it's just not another. It is a AAA game, but without the AAA game formula, it's not nothing that he does is formulaic at all. No. And his latest one is a card. It's an interactive story within uh, a card game on the computer, which is also, I can't remember what it's called. Is it in the same world? Is it in that near automata world? No, it's no. completely different. It's very, very sort of, um, sort of magic, low village and magic kind of thing. Okay. He's quite I mean, into that, isn't he? Like the yeah. earlier games he did is sort of all. Yeah, I mean, after Nier Automator, he did Nier Replicant, which was a kind of remake of the original Nier for sort of modern times. And then there's this card game thing, um, which I can't remember the name of. It will it will come up. But um, yeah, so I mean, in terms of the conference, we've got the Sherlock Escape Room, and then Yoko Taro. Well, Yoko Taro, then the Sherlock Escape Room, and then. I think Disco Elysium, Justin Keenan is going to talk about world building and about how you, I mean, it, 
their, their, their kind of USP and their speciality to some extent is around those kind of dialogues and branching and kind of layering layering kind of emotions into that and different types of impacts on the story in the most unusual ways i think in disco elysium so that's i mean the world building the world building is crucial for scenario designer i mean that's a big thing you know and i think that game is so well regarded that you know that that's a really that that's not one to miss the the chat with justin keenan will be really good um I think Anna's Anna Zulikowska's session, which also features uh, Che Guevara John, who's a games professor, and um, David Negrin from America, who's games and theatre, John Rose Adams from uh, XR Stories, who just sees loads and loads of kind of XR stuff uh, in his job. He's at York University. And then there's Alexander Kelly, who's part of a team called distraction agents who are part of the world of interactive theater and, and kind of play at home. Type so is that like a panel discussion she's hosting? Or? That's a panel discussion. Yeah. For an hour. So that that's really interesting because I think that whole notion of player as performer viewer as interactor is, is part of that thing that we were talking about earlier when you first asked me about what, what, what is the modern audience that that is part of that conversation is, you know, interacting audiences audiences who have more choice who won't just sit there and you know have what's delivered them down the television or you know the modern audiences performer is just a fascinating concept and i think it's it's a key key element of you know modern entertainment and games and and also the the you know this simulate the world of simulation that we were also talking about did you ever play the um interactive video on netflix do you remember that one bandersnatch yeah bandersnatch yeah, bandersnatch, yeah. i thought they did it quite well and um, kimmy schmidt which was a sort of nominally a follow-up to that was really not so good um but bandersnatch had a nice sort of replay technology um which i liked um and it was pretty well written and well put together i did you guys like it i thought um i i it stood out because it was it was well written and everything but they kind of i'm trying to think of the right word like they picked a video games company and everything and here i was interacting with it and i thought to myself i wonder how well they do if it's not about a video game designer and build because one of the problems i have with interactive video so not interactive but interactive video is it it's kind of falls between two chairs. Either I like to be playing a game, or I like to be sitting back watching the watching a video. And when it's not done very well, you end up watching the film, and it goes, "Oh, now you have to sit forward and make a decision." So I'll leave off. Like I was, I was, I was in a different mode. I was in a sit back mode, and now I've got to sit forward. So I make the decision, and then there's another long period where I'm sitting back. So it, I'm not a yeah. big fan. Although Bandersnatch was very well done. Typically, I'm not a fan of that type of... For me, the the best one of that genre is a Russian one called She Sees Red, which is often on sale on Steam. And okay. they did something... They, 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 there's a couple of kind of conceits within it, which I won't give the game away. Um, but it's it's they do it really well in that. It, it has some layers to it. I think this whole notion of like branching narratives 
uh, like, I mean, I, I, I don't want to speak ill of anybody making interactive stuff, but I, I wasn't overly impressed with there's one called Late Shift, I think, that was like an interactive yeah, movie. And it just, it was a conventional movie with decision points. And I don't think yeah, that's enough. Go. And I just, yeah, it is that, you know, you can't sell it as like a cinematic experience that's interactive. That just doesn't, it's not going to hold water because if it's cinematic, you will be sitting back and you need that kind of pulse of interaction to make things cool and exciting and interesting. And if it's just a movie with decision points, it's not, it's not enough. And what do you think then uh, from uh, the difference between Bandersnatch and a, a video game like Detroit uh, become human? which is, uh, I don't know if you've played it, but it's uh, uh, this story in which it has decision points. It's a, it's a branching narrative, basically, but it's kind of uh, embedded in a video game. So it feels like a video game, uh, but it's basically about making narrative decisions. So uh, there's a lot more it... going on, isn't there? And there's a lot yeah. more that gets recorded of your uh your engagement your interaction your thoughts are recorded and played back to you and have an impact on though the way that that plays out like binary choices are not they're not as fulfilling as something that's got like layers of variables that is going to take that information and personalize your inf your experience going forwards i mean that's the that's the real magic in something like detroit i think and it's also also in the games, right? Like something like that, you get like a let's say like more like a proper dilemma. So it's like you're gonna have to choose sides with your in terms of your relationships that you build. And by befriending someone, you're gonna upset somebody else. And that's much more nuanced, as Chris is saying, than just choosing left or right. So it's, it's about the technology then, because I guess that in an in a branching narrative on Netflix, they don't have the the, the technology to really make meaningful choices because you you have a binary choice as you have you mentioned but then they don't uh, they don't have a ripple effect they don't remember that uh, afterwards so it's about really making something meaningful requires a different uh, technology or more more powerful uh, yeah but but at the same time more complex doesn't mean necessarily mean better and you know the the same people who made the one that I feel slightly negatively about made something <laughs> called five dates which which actually works better because somehow the 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 theme and the way that you progress through the story it's again it's kind of choices but it it has a bit more going on with it than just a film with choices is no good it has to be an interactive story or con the, at its core or so or like layered up with with more complex nuanced kind of uh, recording and and decision making that inform the personalization or it's it's something that kind of thematically is just stronger and and, and has been thought out and and kind of works better it's hard to hard to pinpoint i mean it, you know we could we could talk for several hours just about <laughs> just dissecting those 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 particular examples i think i kind of feel like one of the the things i try to encourage clients with is not to be like 
not to get too hung up on branching because I think that you can still you can still have the consequences and it's this idea of having like you know kernels and and satellites so you'd have the main sort of tent poles of the story particularly if it's a training thing you've got to there's certain you know points you need to be in in the in the story but then around that you can have lots of things that affect your relationships with different target audiences and so on so you can still get to the end of the game which in some respects like you were always going to get to that same end but you can have a different outcome you, you can get to that end with everyone loving you or everyone hating you and that doesn't involve branching but it does involve consequences yeah i think that's really important and i, I think when people come to to people can kind of can get captivated by the idea of interactive storytelling i'm going to make an interactive story and you know it's going to branch like this and this and this and this but branching narratives are just one flavor really and you can have a story that it is quite linear but as you say the kind of the things that happen around it and the people's responses within the story to what you're doing as you go through it, even if it's quite linear, result in different outcomes, different feelings. And I think, you know, there's different flavors of interactive storytelling and branching is not necessarily the way that, you know, you have to go. I mean, it's there are good ones and there are fun ones and interactive fiction is a massive thing within itself, which is totally valid and you see some incredible things on there but it's very often it's the anomalies and the unusual ones that really capture your attention because they they speak to you know potential and and you know what might be possible if you do if you break out of the kind of the convention of like okay at this point you're going to do this or this and then that's going to open up these options i have a bit of a confession i find most interactive fiction tedious yeah, me too. <laughs> I thought I was alone. Thank God. I'd sooner play a game or watch a film and uh, interactive fiction for me is don't do it. Or read a book, just, you know. Yeah, I mean, most most interactive projects, I go to them with a heavy heart. When when it came to watch Bandersnatch a couple of years ago, I was like, I had like <laughs> the unbearable weight of like, this, this, you know, what happens when it's game over? Are, are they, they going to send me all the way back to the beginning? So I, kind of, do I have to watch the whole thing again. But actually in Bandersnatch, they did it really nicely and their replay mechanism mechanism was absolutely brilliant which was one of the things that i think saved it as a as a piece of yeah. interactive work but yeah it's interactive fiction is is not my particular cup of tea but you, no. you, then you see and read things that are just amazing within there but like you say they get the standout exceptions but they can't approve the rule <laughs> to me like yeah okay krishna so this conference is happening on the 2nd of february but what happens for um, uh, our audience that didn't get to hear this podcast on time? Do, is the content going to be available apart from those who re registered? Or are you going to release uh, any pieces of the videos or writing a blog post? Or what will be there after uh, February 2nd? Well, I have a confession to make. It's been a little bit chaotic. And I don't exactly know. But um, I know that the, that the university want to edit some stuff into podcasts so that there will be some material making its way out there. Um, certainly some of the material will be visible. And um, I mean, I should 
I, I kind of, I think we went off on a like branching narrative, <laughs> narrative. digression <laughs> before I got to speak about Bernie Sue, who's our kind of lead speaker. And he, his material will definitely, his talk will be available online. And he is a really interesting uh, interactive storyteller who is very well regarded. He's American. And he, I think he kind of, his big works early on with the Lizzie Bennett Diaries That's and it, Emma, yeah. Emma Approved. Is it Emma Approved? But the, I think they were kind of Jane Austen yes. uh, stories that were updated and, and done as kind of YouTube serials that were interactive. Um, and more recently, he's been working on Twitch. And Twitch is a really interesting area for interactive storytelling. Um, I So... His talk's going to be really fascinating, and he's got a whole thing about the the Moneyball uh, the Moneyball idea, which is it's a book and a film. So I I don't know exactly what it is, but it's about kind of underused resources and really making making the most out of what you can get your hands on and what you have that you might not see the magic in. I think. Um, but he's an interesting guy who makes really interesting work, and certainly the artificial uh series on twitch has been really successful i think um and i'm looking forward to seeing what he's going to talk about so what, what i think is that what i think is interesting about bernie sue is he's a very commercial type of person like he's thinking about how's this going to be funded like he's some yeah there's the art but he also wants to get paid you know like he's not a starving artist by a long stretch i'm sure no he's definitely definitely like quite visionary and understands the the business of media exactly i think exactly i think that's what that's what stands out in my mind about bernie sue not not just the innovation but the fact that it's coupled with a commercial model so there, bernie sue's lecture will be available online via leeds beckett and probably bellyfield um and we can send the links to you guys to, to share around as well uh, and certainly some of the other stuff will be as well, but but we I don't know exactly what yet. Um, that's, I think people should just register and watch people, it live. Or that's people should register thing, and yeah, either join us live or you will definitely get the links to the content if you registered. So for sure, and it's free. And um, hopefully we'll be doing it the next year because it's been 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 quite a buzz, and we we seem to have picked up a lot of interest this year. So it's kind of. I wouldn't say fill the gap in the market, but certainly I think putting a stamp on it as interactive storytelling has been really positive and shown shown us that 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 it, it is something that people are interested in and are taking an active sort of part in in you know getting involved in this conference. No, really good. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Krishna. It's been fantastic to have you in the show. My pleasure. Really nice to speak to you both as, as ever. Fantastic. So, Rob, what are your plans for the weekend? So, um, this weekend, well, I had to rewind. Last weekend, I bought a 3D printer. And I've been, uh, so I quite like making stuff. And I've been putting off a 3D printer for ages thinking, well, what you, everyone goes, well, what are you going to make with it? What are you going to do with it? I'm not, I'm not kidding. It's the best thing I've ever <laughs> bought. I think if anyone listening is really into like just making models or just like crafty type stuff, it's really, 
really a lot of fun. Uh, I would say though, right, you have to like I did a lot of research on YouTube, YouTube first off, so I knew what I was getting into. You don't just press the button and then like a fully formed, you know, model or whatever comes from it. You do have to actually use the software or, you know, and um, you have to think about, is it going to support itself? So there's lots, there's lots involved in it. So you, it is kind of like a hobbyist type thing, but it's a lot of fun. I've really been enjoying using the, using the software as well. I'm just using this software called Tinkercad, which is meant for kids at school. It's really it's really easy to create like 3D shapes and then hollow them out and add it. So um, yeah, it's re I'm really enjoying it a lot. I've made like a couple of practical things like I'd lost the lid off of my earbud and um, there was another lid off of a pill thing that needed replacing. So I've done that, but otherwise I've just been making silly little models and trying to understand not you know like building them myself but just trying to understand how to use the software what results i get i've been loving it so i'm going to be doing more of that this weekend Billy. oh fantastic sounds what good what about you yeah it's great well i'm going to be uh, catching up with lots of old uh, films that i haven't watched uh, because uh -huh. i have i have this app that is called uh, just uh, watch app and uh, what it does is that you can select the, um, the video services you're subscribed to and then it filters all the available films or, or series out there just by the, the platforms you you have uh, and then you can also filter by um, IMDB rating okay. so what we've been doing is that I've been going through all this uh, modern classics that I've never watched like um, this week I just watched uh, Saving Private Ryan that is, and all these films that uh, I've always been ashamed of admitting <laughs> that I've not watched. So this, uh, we're we have a list of these classics, and we're probably going to binge watch uh, must uh, see films. That's quite good because what oh, with the app, I imagine it's sort of letting you know that these are actually available to you to watch. So it's exactly. not it's not like one of those books, a thousand films that you need to exactly. see or whatever. That's they are exactly actually accessible the good thing. to you. Mm -hmm. That's really good. It's funny you mentioned films because um, I've been watching the, the Wicker Man this week. So I saw it. Ages, I saw it ages ago, but it's a, not in 1973. I wasn't old enough. But um, what uh, prompted me to do it is I've always liked Wicker Man. I like all that kind of um, pagan sort of rituals and, and so on. And um, a friend of mine, Robert Simpson, um, wrote a book on the Wicker Man. So I bought the book and it's taken me, I've had it for a while now, it's taken me ages to get to sit down to read it. And I started reading it on the commute and um, I thought I really need to go back to watch it. And it's been a lot of fun watching the film and looking his, uh, reading his analysis of it. So I did it in a couple, it's only like 90 minutes, which is not that long for today's bloody all day films that seem to last <laughs> forever. Um, so it's, it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of fun. So I down, I've also, uh, downloaded the um, the Wicker Man sequel by the same by the same director. I don't know if I can bring myself to see the Nicolas Cage version. <laughs> I like I like I like I do like Nicolas Cage and um, I can't remember. I think it's Neil LeBrew. I, um, I like the director. I think I think he's done some good stuff as well. But um, all of these remakes like the modern remake of the Italian job is nothing like the original Italian <laughs> job. So I think what you're doing is the right thing. Go back and see the original 
because it's not very often that the remake improves on you, it. You're reminding reminding me of my mum right now because oh, don't she's... say that. <laughs> Remind me how old I am. No, 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 because of that. Like, because she is uh, saying that she will never, never, never watch a West Side Story the remake <laughs> because she has like this idealized version of the movie of the original yeah. movie because she was like dancing it with her friends when she was a teenager and and is like i don't mind that it's spielberg i don't mind how good it is uh, i'm never going to watch it because it will never be as good as the original good for your mum. and i also think she should not go and see it because it's a blatant cash in on the popularity of sort of like dance films at the moment it's like come on spielberg you got no other ideas other than to copy <laughs> something that came out ages ago. I think it's weak. I think, yeah. he, you know, he should be told, come on, Steve. <laughs> Drag up some better ideas, some more original ideas and treat the public to something new. So do we, oh yeah, I guess, I can't remember if we talked about The Matrix on the last one. But, I think uh, we, we didn't. <laughs> oh, we didn't. Oh, the Matrix, the new one. I, I actually really liked it. I saw, I read some reviews and they like were scathing because <laughs> they felt like it didn't offer anything new. But it's quite obvious that it's the launch of a new trilogy or maybe more. So for me, I've not watched the original Matrix since 1999. I guess when it came out and so i really i really liked it i thought they'd done some really interesting stuff have you seen it yet i did and i loved it too you i did? loved yeah, okay, all, the, all the meta narrative things that they integrated in the film and how they 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 talk about the success of the previous films without really talking about it but like it's within the narrative i mean i don't want to spoil anything but it's i really like it it's good isn't it i think yeah, it was I liked smart it. Hmm. So, um, so that's good. So lots of, lots of stuff going on this weekend. That's yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, as always, if you want to reach uh, to us and you want to tell us something, uh, you just have to send us an email to podcast at conductor.com. Uh, everything will be, uh, the links, the email, everything will be in the show notes. Uh, we really hope that you have a great weekend and see you next week. See you next week. Thank you.